Hi, we're Connors. A bunch of high school students from Muscatine, Iowa, trying to make a dent in the universe. And this is our podcast. Locally Global! Okay, we're recording. Can you state your name? My name is Jeff Pouts. That is my dad. Thank you. It's hard to believe that citizens of America, the freest country in the world, could ever struggle with peace, justice, and strong institutions. But that is exactly what my father illustrates in this story. We were all living in Bangkok, Thailand, and I had to go over to Cambodia and to teach for a few days, which was fine, but I needed to get a, a special couple of stamps in my passport. And so I had been in Thailand for a while, knew the language pretty well, and had uh, interacted with this department for a while. So I went down to get all the right paperwork together, and then uh, a few days later I was off to uh, Cambodia to teach for a few days. And just shortly before this, my wife uh, had a beautiful little girl that was born. (laughs) (laughs) That little girl was me. And I caused quite a bit of trouble. Got into customs and then I had to meet with the customs agent to get back into Thailand at the airport. And uh, she said, uh, welcome back, Mr. Pouts. And I said, well, thank you. And then she looked at my passport and said, oh, did you know that you, your passport expires with this trip? And I said, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> What's wrong? She's like, well, you're missing a stamp. Uh, from the, you know, from the government, from the Thai government to, uh, and since you're missing that, you went out of the country and now coming back in, you have lost your year-long uh, visa to stay in the country of which my whole family is under this main visa. And so my heart sunk. And she says, so what are the consequences of this? And she's like, well, uh, well, one, you'll need to like reapply for the visa that you just gave up. I'm like, okay, but you have 10 days in order to, you and your family are going to need to, uh, since everyone's under the passport, the same passport, yours, you need to take everybody, you need to leave the country for a few days and then come back in on a um, on a visitor's visa. But there was a worse issue that was plaguing us than just the money and the trip and the inconvenience. And that is that you were born and you did not have a passport. And then the drama started. But before we can truly understand the importance of that drama, we have to understand Sustainable Development Goal 16. Hey, I'm your host, Hannah Pouts, and you're listening to Locally Global. This week, we're talking about peace, justice, and strong institutions, or SDG 16, and how it applies to us, U.S. citizens, who have the luxury of existing in a context of peace. The 16th Sustainable Development Goal, Peace, Justice, and Strong Institutions, is aimed at granting every person human rights and the capability to fight for those rights fairly from helping provide legal documentation for all to increasing transparency in government. This goal covers all bases of peace and justice. So what progress have we made in the past four years? 
nations are making strides towards increased peace inequality. For example, countries have halved the amount of violence towards children. However, there's still so much we need to do. 70 million individuals fled their homes in 2018 because of war and prosecution. That is the highest number since 1949. With our combined efforts, by 2030, we will live in a more equal and just world. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of how to promote this goal, we need to know why it's important. Why include this goal in the Sustainable Development Goals? So with uh, Sustainable Development Goal 16, the thing I really like about it is that this, to me, it represents a, a leap forward from the Millennium Development Goals or other efforts at improving uh, you know, life on planet Earth. That is Keith Porter. He is the president of the Stanley Center for Peace and Security, previously known as the Stanley Foundation. Mr. Porter is significant because his whole life revolves around keeping people safe. From nuclear policy to climate change to mass violence, he does it all. Here, he illuminates why SDG 16 is important in our global context. When you look at like SDGs 1 through 15, all in a very different all in different fields, all of them good, right? We all want clean water. We all want better education. You know, uh, we want gender equality and all those kind of things. And we can measure them all. There are metrics that are available. But in SDG 16, the acknowledgement here is that all those things are good, but they have to happen within a certain context. You know, it's one thing to say that you live at peace, but that could be under an authoritarian regime or something, right? Yeah, you may have carved out a spot of peace in a violent world or something. But really what we want is this context of peace and justice. And what's the good of fixing everything under SDGs 1 through 15 if we don't live in this world that's committed to peace and justice and all those kind of things? And they are definitely connected to each other. That context of peace and justice is likely to foster the other SDGs. And if we have the other SDGs, then hopefully that leads to SDG 6. So we know why this goal is important. But how do you measure strong institutions? Or for that matter, how do you measure peace? The idea here is that genocide and mass atrocities don't happen by accident. You know, these aren't like natural disasters. This isn't like a hurricane or an earthquake. These are human beings making conscious decisions to carry out these atrocities. Well, why? And what is the context that allows that to happen? Usually they're done by either a government or by a power that wants to be the government or wants to challenge the government, deciding that by killing or by threatening to kill a part of the population, it will enhance their political standing. Great. So the UN has benchmarks. But what do they measure? Yeah. So in the UN, there's an office of the Secretary General Special Advisor on Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect. And they have a set of criteria. And there's really only like, I don't know, 10 or a dozen criteria on there. Uh, that are the benchmarks that they use to sort of judge whether or not a society is you know, at risk. Let's look at an example of when part of a population doesn't view their government as legitimate. Sure. The FARC stands for uh, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and uh, it's a guerrilla movement that started in 1964, sort of with the idea of taking up arms and rising up against the Colombian state. That is Gina Stephens a journalist, photographer, and National Geographic explorer. She is based in Colombia, working on her Explorer grant. Here, she's talking about the FARC, 
a group of people that didn't view their government as legitimate. And this group originated during a time when there was a lot of persecution against people who are leaning towards the left politically. And so this movement sort of started as a, as a response to this persecution. So FARC is, a, is like a Marxist-Leninist group. They're sort of based on these socialist ideas. They're against imperialism. They started mainly as, as an agrarian reform movement. Their base is made up of rural peasants, and so they basically took up arms in hopes that they could somehow secure land rights for themselves. Eventually, they grew into sort of a really large, belligerent, armed group. Once their ranks grew enough, this was sort of right around the time when the narcotics industry became really strong here in Colombia. It's really interesting what happened because the FARC is a group that I said is based uh, out of rural Colombia, and rural Colombia is where where coca, the base ingredient of, of cocaine, is produced. The narcotics industry sort of combined with the FARC, and that became a huge source of funding for them, and it allowed them to grow even more powerful as an armed group. However, what's really interesting is that when the FARC signed a peace treaty with the Colombian government, peace didn't increase in the region. Actually, it decreased. To basically sum it up for you, the peace process had the unintentional effect of destabilizing a huge portion of the country, mainly the, the regions that were controlled by the FARC. They were there for years and years and years. People knew them as the government. They were in charge. And then when they left, it was sort of like these places became like the Wild West. Anybody could go in and say, OK, I'm taking over. I'm in charge. So in a lot of these places, the peace deal actually has resulted in an increase in conflict happening. So now instead of just one big armed group, the FARC, now there's many, many, many smaller armed groups. And it's kind of, you know, it's like taking a, a hose with water shooting out of the hose in one big fat stream, and that's the FARC, and then put your thumb over the hose and it just sort of sprays out in a billion different particles. That's sort of what's happened. You know, <laughs> it's now not just the FARC there. There's just lots and lots of different armed groups struggling to take control of these places. That fire hose doesn't exist in just Colombia, though. Problems like this exist worldwide. Throwing the conversation back to Keith, we can see another example of unrest in a country bordering Colombia. That example is... The example I was going to use uh, a second ago was Venezuela. So, also on that, that list of criteria... Remember, those are the UN's eight pieces of criteria that measure peace in a region or the potential for genocidal acts. Some examples of that criterion are changes in a government structure, using economics to target a group of people, or past conflict. There's a part of it that has to do with people in your borders who have come there from outside, either as refugees or as displaced persons, asylum seekers. Those are seen as trigger points. And they can, they can, if not handled properly, become a huge destabilizing influence on a government. You know, you can imagine that if you're a country and you've got like 10 million people in your country and all of a sudden a million refugees come into your country, that could be really bad. Now, supposedly the rest of the world is supposed to help in these situations and provide aid. And to some extent they do. And you'll see the UN come in and they'll set up tents and they'll have food. And, and that's great. And that can solve, 
you know, that can help with the problem. But then as it sort of drags on, you get this other effect where other people in the country, like poor people living in the country go, no, wait a minute. I've lived here my whole life. Nobody's sending me food. You know, no doctors are coming to visit me. Yet these people across the road living in the UN camp, and they get, you know, food's coming in, doctors are coming in, you know, water and all that. So it, that can be a destabilizing impact too. How you deal with the influx of people from the outside can be really important. So in the Latin American network, a lot of work over the last couple of years on Venezuela. What they're really concerned about is what does this mean for my country, you know, to have all of these refugees? I went to one of the meetings on Venezuela. I took a cab from the airport to the hotel. Cab driver didn't know who, who I was or why I was there. The whole way there, he complained about the Venezuelan refugees. He said, they come here, they don't have anything, they're living in their cars, they're taking our jobs. I mean, that was that's, that's what he told me the whole way. Now, that's, that's not good. It's not good for the Venezuelans, it's not good for Panama either. Then uh, earlier this year, we did another meeting in the Latin American network, and we did it in this town called Cucuta, Colombia, which is right on the border with Venezuela. Cucuta is a small Colombian city bordering Venezuela. It is one of the largest points of immigration in the country. And with South America as a whole experiencing mass migration, that means a lot of immigrants. Between 25,000 and 50,000 people cross Cucuta every day, many of which deciding to stay in Colombia. We were able in that case to take all of the participants that were from all over the region. Uh, we took them to a refugee camp, so they got to meet people from that had fled Venezuela. We took them to the border which on the Venezuelan side was closed by the government there. There's a bridge and it's all very official looking and there are people with uniforms and all of that. Bridge goes over a river, you go down below the bridge, everyone's just walking back and forth across. And in fact, Venezuela and Colombia had such a close relationship. They were considered brother countries. People on one side went to school on this side. They went to the, you know, these guys went to the doctor on the other side. There was almost as if there wasn't a border. So what was happening down below wasn't unusual. It's what always happened. It was great for those other government representatives to see what was really happening. We took them down there and they got to talk to people who were crossing the border and talk about what their real concerns were. The hope is that when you go back to make policy, then you make policy based on what's really happening, not on what you're being told is happening or what you wish was happening. That cab driver is important because he shows how intervention may be an important means of keeping peace, but it is not the perfect option. Instead, Keith Porter, Gina Steffens, and Sustainable Development Goal 16 itself advocate for preventative measures. But I liken this to what firefighters do. You know, firefighters do all kinds of things. They do inspections. They do safety training because their ultimate goal is to prevent fires. Like they really don't want to go put out fires. They want to stop them. But in the middle of the day, if they're doing a training on, you know, how to prevent fires, if the alarm goes off, well, they drop what they're doing and they get in their trucks and they go put out the fire. So in the world, when you think about like this, you know, international crisis group, I mean, all these organizations, they really want to spend a lot of time. And we want them to spend a lot of time figuring out how do you create resilient societies? How do you how do you create societies where they don't resort to violence to solve their political problem? Now that we know that preventative action is the best option for stopping unrest in the future, the clear question is, where do we start? Well, there are a million different places to start. But to be most effective, we have to go way back. That's right, birth. Specifically, birth registration. You know, it's one of those things that we've always, in the Western world, we've thought of this as just a basic 
human right that, you know, of course you have a birth certificate. Who doesn't have a birth certificate? In much of the world, it is as much a privilege as it is a weapon. It's a way of controlling people. It's a way of not allowing people to travel, not allowing people to exercise basic human rights by not providing them with documentation. It seems completely foreign to our ears to not have a birth certificate. But a perfect example of this is actually the FARC. I would say that a lot of of the guerrilla fighters who are part of the FARC, a lot of these people never had a birth certificate. They never had a Colombian ID card. They've never voted. They've never had a bank account. Most of these people were born and raised in parts of the country that they might as well be on the moon. America is roughly nine times bigger than Colombia. And yet, it was like those FARC fighters were practically on the moon. Imagine how small a Colombian city might be from your own town. And then imagine what their isolation must feel like. It's almost unimaginable, right? They're so far away from the centers of power in the country. So that was a really interesting thing that happened when when they signed a peace deal. These people emerged from the forest, basically, and for the first time were registering themselves. I was just last week covering local elections here in Bogota, and for the first time ever, I was following this woman who was in the FARC for most of her life, and she went and voted for the first time in her life. That's sort of a, a big part of this peace deal, is bringing these people who felt alienated from the state, bringing them in and making them involved in the democracy of their country instead of at war with it. Oh, they did it. After 52 years, they were able to make a peace treaty. Yes, there was still violence in the region, but they did it setting a precedent for future warfare in their country. A birth certificate is a pass into the free world. It is a pass to voting rights and a job and a passport. It is the key to the locked doors of justice. However, how do we get people birth registration, or their voices heard in government, or simply equal rights? The Stanley Center for Peace and Security is working towards this. And their idea is, as Keith says... Yeah, all of this sort of goes to this idea. We could spend our time stopping genocide, ongoing genocide, and we have to do that. But also, how do we create these other kinds of society? A lot of it is trying to get out in front of these things, get countries to talk about them in advance. Instead of talking about them in the crisis, what if they all just addressed it as a thing in in advance? So one of the things we've tried to do is to, in various ways, get every country to appoint someone in the government who's actually responsible for this kind of thinking, for this kind of preventative thinking. In Latin America, we have co-founded this thing called the Latin American Network on Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention. We have 80% or so of the governments have actually appointed a focal point to this group. So this is a government-to-government group. They've met twice a year for the last four or five years now. Beyond the work that the Stanley Center for Peace and Security is doing, there are ways we can get involved. Here are the organizations that Keith and Gina want you to know about. I think that it's really important for for there to be organizations that exist to back up independent journalists. And here in Colombia, there's a really good one that's called the FLIP. It stands for Fundación para la Libertad de Prensa, like the Foundation for press freedom and they basically exist just to monitor the you know the situation of freedom of press in Colombia for independent journalists having that kind of organization is really really important the, another thing they do is they offer 
certain trainings. Another one in the United States is the International Women's Media Foundation. It's another NGO, and I've received a grant from them. They've had several different trainings that I've participated in, including hostile environment trainings. An NGO is a non-government organization. Pretty much, that means that it operates separately from a government body and has more freedom to help people. Those hostile environment trainings are courses that prepare journalists to how they may react in a high-stress environment and how they should act. These kinds of things are for journalists who are potentially working in conflict areas. I've taken these courses with the International Women's Media Foundation, and these courses exist to teach journalists the skills to to do their reporting safely. So they teach you things like digital security and situational awareness. They teach you how to break out of handcuffs or how to how to break out of the trunk of a car. You know, there's lots of bad people in the world. So I think that these kinds of organizations are extremely important to give journalists this kind of skills they need to do their job safely. We need these kinds of organizations to be the watchdog for what we're doing. So we've been involved in this thing called uh, the Peace in Our Cities campaign, and it actually is directed at SDG 16 because of that all levels kind of thing actually sort of allows something like this to happen for them to align themselves with the SDGs and therefore align themselves with the UN. This is a way for city governments, civic actors inside of cities to also play a role in these global international efforts as well. Um, I would encourage people like to look at the Peace in Our Cities campaign. It's just sort of one example of how the SDGs overall, but SDG 16 in particular, opens the door for everyone to be involved and you know have an opinion and to benefit from this focus on sustainable development. And now let's get back to that drama. So uh, we had to figure out how to get a passport. So I went into the U.S. Embassy and mentioned it's like, oh, yeah, she said, you know, because you had really just been born. I said, well, you just submit this paperwork. We had to wait for the hospital to give a birth certificate for you. Once we received that, you know, the official one from Thailand for you, we then submitted that to the to the embassy. And then in six weeks, they would call back and set up a time that we could go meet with them and start the process of getting a passport for you. So we're talking like three months. And the problem was that if I stayed more than 10 days since the time I landed in back in Thailand, I would start getting a fine per day for all of us as a family or individuals. <laughs> I can't remember. It was going to be like a lot of money every day. But it was worse than that. Remember. Beyond being fined for every day my family outstayed their visa, my father was also illegally harboring us in the country. So, three days after the 10 days expired, the Pouts family arrived at the airport with a worried father prepared to pay a large fine. I don't know, there was like about 10 young women. And when they saw you, <laughs> they just crowded around you. It's like, oh, this little baby. They, even they were calling you Champu, which means little pinky. So, grandma and mom and your older brother, who's like four years old at the time, they're all gathered around and all these people are gathered around and I'm just standing there with 
this stern 50, 60 year old guy who's just doing everything by the book. I give him all my papers and all my stuff. And then he just kind of looks at me and then he goes back. And then a bunch of these ladies, <laughs> these uh, Thai ladies, they ran back over to him. And I don't know what they said. They just kept pointing at me and pointing at you. And I just smiled and mom smiled and you were cooing and being all perfect and pink. So because of you, and all of your pinkiness. <laughs> I did not go to jail in Thailand. I did not go to jail in Hong Kong. I did not pay buku fines. I just had to spend a lot of money to fly the whole family over to Hong Kong and back. They waved us on through. We didn't have to pay a fine. I wasn't separated from my family. And my father wasn't in prison. Those may sound like extreme alternatives. But if my passport hadn't been expedited... If those ladies hadn't been working that day, if about anything went different than it did, those alternatives would be realities. So while my father may say it was my pinkiness, it was truly just luck. I got lucky. I was lucky to be born to U.S. citizens where peace and justice and strong institutions are the norm. However, if I was, let's say, born in Cambodia, where my father was teaching, my life would be completely different, which is why the 16th Sustainable Development Goal is important to everyone. We can't take for granted that we have birth registration, or that we have an open and free press, or that we are citizens of the U.S., because 60% of seven-year-olds don't have birth registration. Not every country has a free press, and 95% of the world aren't U.S. citizens. Produced and written by Hannah Pouts. Thanks to Rebecca McNeely, Marcos Batista, Angela Pouts, and Rachel Hansen for editing and feedback, and Mr. Hayes for supplying nice computers for editing. Special thanks to Gina Steffens and Katie Thornton for advice on how to build a podcast. Thanks to Jeff Pouts, Keith Porter, and Gina Steffens for supplying their time and knowledge for interviews. Credit to Anchor and Soundtrap for snazzy music, editing tools, and recording capabilities. And finally, an extra special thank you to National Geographic for their gracious podcasting grant. If you want to know more about the Peace in Our Cities campaign or the International's Women Media Foundation, check out the links below. Tune in next week and you'll hear Braulio Sandoval talking about Goal 17, Partnerships, the goal to end all goals. How and why our planet can live without us, but can we live without it?